the past few weeks as we've been uh, looking at this topic of heaven and what the Bible has to say about it. Last few weeks we've been looking at human beings as uh, creatures of God, specifically uh, being said of them, made in the image of God. That's something that's said neither of the animals nor of the angels, but of human beings alone. We saw last week that human beings, the first human being, was created uh, out of the ground, out of the dust of the earth. We were created of the earth, and we were created for the earth, that that was the environment in which God placed us. And we contemplated the contingency that if Adam had not sinned, the uh, outcome would not have been that he would have died and gone to heaven, but that he would fulfill the task that God had given him to subdue the earth and rule over it, spreading the blessings of the garden of God to the ends of the earth and growing up into all that it meant to be made in the image of God. We're told that, uh, that, that death came to Adam because he sinned. As John Murray said, it's not a debt of his nature, It's a debt due to his sin. And so I ask you to think about what would have happened had Adam not sinned, the contingency, what it would have looked like, and concluded that it would have looked like that Adam would have gone on living forever in the place that God created him to live. Contrary to the idea, Uh, Plato, the Athenian philosopher, um, taught that the soul had preeminence, that souls were created and placed within bodies, and that the bodies were the prison houses of the soul. And the great hope was for the soul to escape the entanglements of the body. It's very interesting. In in Plato, the primacy is the soul. In the biblical account, the primacy is the body. God formed the man out of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and we saw that the text said he became a living soul, not that he was given a soul, not that a soul entered his body, but that he became a living soul. But this idea of Plato, that the uh, body is the prison house of the soul, gained traction in the church through the Gnostics and took root and began to spread like weeds throughout throughout the church. Uh, Had Adam not sinned, living forever on earth would have been our destiny. Well, you know, sin changes the course of the way things would have been, but it doesn't change the purpose of God. And so from its earliest days, the church has confessed, I believe in the resurrection of the body. But because of the influence of Plato, that confession and hope was replaced with a foreign one, though often an unspoken one. 
I believe in the immortality of the soul. My hope today is that as a result of what we hear from the scriptures, you'll mean it with every fiber of your being when we confess together, I believe in the resurrection of the body. I'm going to read today from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, two portions of that, uh, verses 12 through 23, and then verses 42 through 55. This is the Apostle Paul addressing originally the church at Corinth, but it's the Word of God, and through it the Holy Spirit addresses the church in Leesburg. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. And then in verse 42, So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Let me stop and make a comment at this point, if your translations say a natural body. You recall that we were told in Genesis that God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life and he became a living soul. And the word that Paul uses here is literally a soulish body. It is sown a soulish body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a soulish body, there's also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the soulish, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man was of heaven. 
As was the earthly man, so are those who are of earth, and as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man of heaven. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash and the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Well, Lord, your word says that if we confess with our lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that you've raised him from the dead, that we'll be saved. So help us today, enable us to do both of those things and to understand the truth of what it means that Jesus is Lord and that you've raised him from the dead. We'll give you the praise. Amen. I believe in the resurrection of the body. That's what we confess needs to be stated up front and unambiguously that the resurrection does not happen at the moment a person dies. That's not the resurrection. Now, I want to state that because I will hear comments frequently at memorial services that indicate that people think that the resurrection occurs then. And I'll hear people say things like, particularly if it's someone uh, who struggled with some physical weakness will say, well, now he's in his resurrection body. Uh, Or things like, well, he's gone to his eternal home. Or they might uh, quote this passage from Hosea 13, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? And read it as though it applies to that moment in time rather than it being a future hope. An emphasis on the immortality of the soul and a tacit denial of the resurrection of the body goes all the way back to the time of the apostles. When Paul left uh, Timothy in Ephesus there, uh, if you read the the two letters that he writes, his great concern is that there are people there uh, who are stirring the pot at Ephesus. They're doing that because they want to be regarded as teachers of the law. And the things that he is concerned about them doing is teaching, as we get to the word here, uh, literally um, other or different doctrines. In other words, things that are not apostolic. doesn't mean they're necessarily untrue. It means that they're divisive. And Paul writes to Timothy, he says, Keep reminding of them of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. 
It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. You know, I think about that. How many times have you heard theological arguments that are just quarreling over words? Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, but who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. And this wasn't a new problem when Paul wrote his second letter to Timothy. In his first letter, he said, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, that you may command certain men not to teach different doctrines differently than the apostolic witness. Then we give you, we're adding things to the apostolic witness. Uh, Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these things and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. And as Paul is uh, talking about these uh, things, he's talking about those things that are foundational to the apostolic truth. You know, I was talking to somebody this past week and uh, we were just talking about kind of this, this whole realm of belief and what are the boundaries. And I said to him, uh, well, you know, those things that we find in the ancient creeds are the things that I'm willing to be thrown to the lions for. The things that I find in the confession of faith and catechisms are things that I believe and I'm willing to contend with others about as brothers. And then beyond that, there are things that are helpful to talk about if they uh, will help us to grow closer to the Lord. But it's not something that I'm going to um, get into a tiff with over someone. And I base that on what Paul says here. Paul was intolerant of theological hair-splitting, suspicious of the motives who engaged in it. But listen, friends, the resurrection of the body was not in that category. Was not in that category. And it's right in this context when Paul uh, wrote to Timothy and he said, avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more godly. Tell them not to quarrel about words. He says their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. How could they say the resurrection had already taken place? And in in that culture, uh, tombs were hewn out of the limestone. That those who were uh, buried there were wrapped in uh, burial shrouds and laid upon beds. And the next time you had a funeral, you would pass them. How, How could you say as you walk past them that the resurrection has already occurred? I think that what's going on is they say, well, the resurrection has happened spiritually people rise up 
spiritually. See, the resurrection has already happened. And Paul was unrelenting in his condemnation of those who maintain that the resurrection was a thing that happened spiritually but was not a bodily reality. Now, Ephesus wasn't the only place that was happening. We read about it at Corinth. Paul says, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. See, what were they saying? Some people at Corinth, they were saying, well, we, we die, we go to heaven, that's it. Paul says that the reality of the resurrection of the body, the resurrection of the dead, is so unbreakably linked with the resurrection of Jesus that if the dead won't be raised, Jesus wasn't raised either. That if Christ really and truly and bodily and physically uh, rose from the dead, then we must rise from the dead. But if we won't rise from the dead, then Christ hasn't either. And Paul goes on to say, lest somebody say, well, I'm okay with that. Maybe Jesus rose spiritually. He says, if Christ didn't really bodily rise, our faith is worthless. He says, in fact, that if Christ did not rise from the dead and the dead are not raised, then those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, that's a euphemism for being dead, he says they're lost. They are not, cannot, and will not be saved. John Murray, in his book Redemption Accomplished and Applied, wrote about the goal of our redemption, and I want to read you the short paragraph. Glorification does not refer to the blessedness upon which believers enter at their death. It is true that saints then are made perfect in holiness and pass immediately into the presence of Christ, yet this is not their glorification. It is not the goal of the believer's hope and expectation. Glorification is the complete and final redemption of the whole person when, in the integrity of body and spirit, the people of God will be conformed to the image of the risen, exalted, and glorified Redeemer. One of the heresies that has afflicted the Christian church and has been successful in polluting the stream of Christian thought from the first century to the present regards salvation as consisting of the emancipation of the soul from the body. The direction it is taken is to play on the chord of the immortality of the soul. When this happens, there is a grave deflection from the biblical doctrine of immortal life. Glorification is resurrection. 
It is not the vague sentimentality and idealism so characteristic of those whose interest is merely the immortality of the soul. Here we have the concreteness and realism of the Christian hope epitomized in the resurrection of life and signaled by the descent of Christ from heaven. I believe in the resurrection of the body. And the resurrection of the body has always been the hope of God's people. Now, it's a hope that is not as clearly seen in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. But whenever there was a future hope that went beyond death expressed, it was a hope of the resurrection, ultimately. So in Job chapter 19, verses 25 and 26, we read, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. And the book of Job is written in poetic verse. And so we've got this parallelism between skin and flesh so that the same word isn't used. But the the point that it's referring to is the body. That the confession is that after my body's been destroyed, yet in my body will I see God. Daniel was told in Daniel chapter 12, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued, and multitudes of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And the New Testament says the same. I won't read you all the passages that speak about the hope of the resurrection, but I'll read you the words of Jesus from John chapter 5, verses 28 through 29. Jesus said, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear the voice of the Son of God and shall come forth, those who did good to a resurrection of life and those who did evil to a resurrection of judgment. The hope and confession of the Christian church has always been not, I believe in the immortality of the soul, but I believe in the resurrection of the body. It's a, conv- it's a confession of convinced hope, but it's no mere hope because the event has already begun. Our coming resurrection is a sure reality because Jesus' resurrection is an accomplished reality. And the Apostle Paul writes, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. And Paul speaks of the resurrection here in terms of a harvest. And the Israel had the feast of the firstfruits where they would go out and, and, the, and, the, and the crop was ready and they would bring in the first of that crop. And that's what he's uh, likening the situation here to Jesus and those who are in him. That Jesus is the first fruits. That if Jesus has come in, if the first fruits have come in, the rest of the crop cannot fail. 
The gospel writers go to lengths to make sure that we don't understand them. Jesus did not raise, rise spiritually. He rose really bodily, physically from the dead. All four gospel writers tell us that the tomb was empty. That those who went to the tomb looking for him were given the message, he is not here, he has risen, just as he said. Not, well, you know, uh, you see his body there, I know, but uh, he's actually risen and he's gone to heaven. No, he is not here. He's risen from the dead. Luke tells us that Peter saw the grave shroud that Jesus was wrapped in, but that Jesus himself was not there. And at the end of Luke's gospel, we read this account that while the disciples were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And they were startled and frightened, thinking that they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. Not enough. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it in their presence. Now, friends, you can disbelieve what they say, but you cannot mistake what they say. Jesus really physically, bodily, rose from the dead. And because he has, we must. That's the point that Paul makes to the church at Corinth. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. And Paul goes on to tell us that we will be raised in the same bodies, but our bodies won't be the same. In verse 42, he says, So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a, a soulish body, the state of Adam, before he reached the fullness of his maturity. It is raised a spiritual body, which does not mean a ghostly body, but it means brought to completion by the Holy Spirit. And Paul goes on to say, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, that the Lord will come back 
and there'll be a generation that's yet living. And so Paul says, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash and the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For the imperishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. And when that happens, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written in Isaiah uh, 25, 8 will come to pass. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Then the saying will come to pass written in Hosea 13, 14. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death? is your sting. Psalm 8, we looked at that passage last week, um, that that the psalmist prays and he's talking about man's, man's place in creation. And he says, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. Or that could be translated particularly in the New Testament. You made him uh, not merely a little lower, but a little while lower than the angels. What do you think that that means, that we were created in the image of God? That animals nor angels are created in the image of God, but we are. In 1 Corinthians 6.3, as, as Paul um, castigates the church for not being able to handle the simplest of things among them, he says, do you not know that we will judge angels? And the idea of a judge uh, in the Bible uh, unlike, uh, unlike our system of government where we separate the branches between executive and legislative and judicial, the idea of a judge in the Bible is not limited to the idea merely of judicial office. The judges in Israel, you don't usually see them sitting deciding cases. Sometimes you do. They're leaders. They rule. It was God's plan that Eden, the garden of God, is the base of operation for subduing the whole of the earth and ruling over it to bring the blessings of the garden of God to the whole of the earth was to be but the start. What do you think it means that we were created in the image of God? Don't you know that you will judge angels? In the integrity of your person, in body and soul. I believe in the resurrection of the body as the great confession of the church. And it's the great goal for which God has destined us in Christ. There is not an early creed that says, I believe in the immortality of the soul. as, As we saw when we looked at Genesis, the Bible clearly says Not that human beings have souls, but that human beings are souls. We saw from that text that a soul is a physical living being. You know, everything that the Bible says about uh, souls, particularly in the early part of uh, of the creation account, would drive us to a conclusion, the inescapably logical conclusion that the Pharisees reached that whatever hope there might be for a resurrection in the future, that at the moment, death ends it all. When we die, we die, and that's it. It would be impossible to, to conclude otherwise. 
But then we read with respect to this very issue that God does the impossible. And death does not end it for us. And what by all accounts ought not to be, because we're not a soul imprisoned in a body, but we are living souls created in our integrity and irreducible complexity, what ought not to be, God makes a reality. And we try to make rationalistic sense out of that. We try to figure it out. And the only way that we can do it is to invoke Plato. And when we do, we end up with the idea that we have souls rather than we are, that we are souls. We end up thinking that we're ghosts in the machine. And then inevitably that the soul is what matters, the body does not. We, as Murray said, play the chord of the immortality of the soul and we end up invariably denying the resurrection. The Son of God was crucified, died, and buried, and the third day he rose again from the dead. And if you understand the full weight of who he is, of what he came to do, what he has done in his resurrection, and of what it means for you to be united to Christ, it leads to the conviction and confession, unbelievable to the world, but undeniable to the church. I believe not in the immortality of the soul, but in the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come, and ultimately... That is the hope of heaven. Pray with me. Uh, Our Father, you have caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Father, this is not some ancillary bit of doctrine. As Paul speaks about the controversies that people wanted to fight about at Ephesus and told them not to quarrel about such matters, the resurrection was not among them. So important is this doctrine that it has been memorialized in the two great ecumenical creeds of the church, those creeds which are confessed by Christians the world over and throughout time. And so, Father, convince us and persuade us not to have some gossamer and ethereal hope, but the concrete hope of the resurrection through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead We'll give you the glory. Amen. Mm -hmm.